Hey there, you're listening to What the Riff? Join us as we remember the great rock and roll hits from a month between 1965 and 1995. We're going to riff on all things about the bands, the members, and the goings-on during that time. We hope to inspire you to find and download the songs you hear today, whether you're fans who forgot about some of these tracks or maybe never even heard them before. Check out our blog at whattheriff.com or follow us on Facebook at What the Riff. Here's a shout-out to our sponsors, Right Column Financial, offering CFO and bookkeeping services for small business. Stanton Electric, a commercial electrical specialist, and Marbury Creative Group, a brand development agency that helps companies tell it better. So let's turn up the volume and enjoy this episode of What the Riff? Future U.S. Senator John McCain is released after spending over five years in a North Vietnamese POW camp. Marlon Brando declines the Oscar for Best Actor at the 45th Academy Awards to protest Hollywood's portrayal of Native Americans in film. And in an exhibition game with the Pirates, twins Larry Issel becomes the first designated hitter. You are listening to What the Riff from March of 1973, and I'm Brian. I'm Rob. I'm Bruce. And Rob, please introduce our guest today. Today, in place of Wayne, we have Mike Fernandez, friend of the show. Nice to be here. We're glad you're here, Mike. It's it's always exciting and interesting to have somebody new join us, and I'm really excited because you've actually got a 20-plus year career in radio. I and did. Spent a lot of time doing music directing, being on the air, and doing whatever radio guys do all listen, right listen to that radio voice would you it's awesome <laughs> and listen to the voice and, and the sound that we have in the background there oh you know what this one is folks mm-hmm. what do you got for us today bruce this is the eighth studio album by pink floyd who the dark side <laughs> of the moon oh yeah <laughs> by from- the way though bruce i have a question which one's pink <laughs> oh by the way <laughs> She's the one with the funky hair. Yes, yes. This was released uh, on the 1st of March, 1973, and it was envisioned as a concept album focusing on the pressures that the band was facing, like greed and conflict and death, and of course, mental health issues. Mm -hmm. That's always a, a theme of Pink Floyd. The song that you're listening to now is called Time. This was released in the U.S. as the second single from the album. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize they had actually released this Mm -hmm. as singles, but uh, they did. Money and Time were the ones that were released. And they uh, they released the singles only because of the pressure to do that from the record company. Sure. Because they still, the record companies back then, as we all had Mm -hmm. a lot of clout. Said, yep, you've got to release it. Yep. So, but probably what happened here, though, is even though maybe Time didn't um, chart or, or do well like a regular like top 40 radio at the time that this album came out you had the advent of rock radio and uh and so you had a lot of radio stations playing deeper cuts and things like that would, would show up and that's one of the reasons why groups like pink floyd took off yeah as oh, well. yeah good point mike absolutely so this is an unusual song because the lead vocals are shared between David Gilmore and Richard Wright. <laughs> Richard Wright rarely did the lead vocals, but he did in this case. Um, the sounds of the clocks that you heard, those were not actually recorded as meant to be a part of the song. It was Alan Parsons, who's the engineer on this. Oh, really? Had done a test um, of, uh, of 
it was a quadraphonic test, and he had gone to an antique store and did this test. Mm-hmm. And the band heard the, the, the sounds, and they're like, oh, that'd be perfect. <laughs> so that's how that got added in. Um, and all the, uh, the, the song, of course, the lyrics are Roger Waters, but all of the band members are credited for the songwriting. And this would be the last time that that would happen in the band's history. Mm -hmm. And the idea of this song is you can't really prepare for what happens next, but you can still chart your own path. That's Mm -hmm. kind of the the idea behind it. Interesting to me that the two singles off this album are Time and Money, which are the things that you're <laughs> exactly. always constantly looking for more well, of. And then isn't that really one song because time is money? Oh, there you go. <laughs> so Pink Floyd at this time was David Gilmore on guitar, mm-hmm. also lead and backing vocals. Richard Wright is on keyboards, and, and in this case he's on vocals. Roger Waters on bass and vocals, and Nick Mason on percussion. So that's kind of the core Pink Floyd that you would think about. Bruce, were you a um, a really big Pink Floyd fan in the day, back in the uh, day? Back in the day, I was not as much of a Pink Floyd fan as I became. It really grew on me. Yeah. So... And I, and I can say the same. Mm-hmm. When I at, when 1973, I had no idea who Pink Floyd was, and then I had a, an uncle uh, ask me, "Have you heard the new Pink Floyd album?" <laughs> and I thought he's talking about a cartoon. I, I didn't know who Pink right. Floyd was, but then again, I was nine years old. Which one's Pink? <laughs> I love this right. uh, lyric, by the way. Wow. How dark is that, man? <laughs> well, Roger Wazard wasn't really known for his positive mentality. Yeah, positivity was uh, was a little bit... Uh, wasn't, it was not a sunny disposition, was it? <laughs> not at all. Who's that female voice in the background, well, Bruce? That is not... That's actually a session musician, if I'm not mistaken. But we will talk about a female vocalist very shortly. All right. I was surprised that I was able to get this album because, I mean, it's so iconic. I would have thought we had already covered it. Yeah. You know? And, of course, Brian grabbed a couple of uh, albums. He was banned from this for a while. So Yeah. No more Pink Floyd from Brian. He's covered too many. <laughs> but I'll, I'll tell you, the, uh, the, the surprising thing for me is how difficult it was to figure out what you're going to do. This is really not an album of singles at all. This is an album that's meant to be played from it's, start it's, to finish. They're different pieces, but they, they kind of interconnect. They do, yeah. Like this right here. This is in the song Time, but it's a reprise of the of Breathe, Yes. right? So it, it kind of flows in and out. It's this stream of consciousness from a, a, an, a, a musical standpoint. Yeah. And one of the things that you... That they really wanted to do as a concept album they wanted to take you somewhere when you listen to this album and you really if you put it on it will take you places that's hopefully right. to sleep <laughs> that's a nice ending right there speaking yeah. of that yeah so what's the next one we have bruce so this fades in on the album and sometimes you would hear this on fm radio mm-hmm. 
they would lead from time into this next song, which is called The Great Gig in the Sky. And uh, it's, it's basically an instrumental. There are some spoken words at the front. And what happened is the band went around the studio asking people questions like, are you afraid of dying? And that's one of the questions here. You'll hear this from uh, Jerry O'Griscoll, who is either the doorman. Here he is. So he's either the doorman or a janitor or both at Abbey Road Studios. Hmm. When and you said when you said dark, you were kidding. <laughs> oh yeah. Bruce hadn't slept in the past no, I two weeks. That. <laughs> I can tell, yes. There we go. So it's primarily Richard Wright doing the keyboard instrumental, but these vocalizations are Claire Tory. And Tory was a session vocalist that Alan Parsons had worked with previously. Ah. And it's interesting, she couldn't make the session originally scheduled because she had tickets to see Chuck Berry. But they had a supplemental session, and um, she came in, and she did two takes, started on the third one, and listen to that. Wow. Isn't that powerful? She started on a third take, and she got about halfway through and said, I've done, I've done what I can do on this. Um, but the idea was they just told her that, uh, you know, she just needed to get in there and, and vocalize. There's no lyrics. It's about dying. Have a bit of a sing on that girl. That's kind of what they said. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like that in any life of a, an iconic band, uh -huh. that they go through this time period where all of a sudden, whatever they've done, it may start out with an album or two that kind of is like you can kind of see the the seeds of greatness and then mm -hmm. all of a sudden it's like they just whatever it happens that creative meets you know that all gels together and so this album is part of that along with the wall and yeah. the other thing is it's like they had that time period where you know the creativity is such that they're just—it's just flowing out of them. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. back to what Claire was doing. And on, if you're going to cover this, I apologize, but she apologized to them. She thought it was terrible. This this piece that she's doing. Wow. So she goes and and and, the, and Rick Wright and all those guys said, "No, no, no. This is perfect." So she was really sure. disturbed that she let them down. This is one of the more famous pieces in in rock music isn't absolutely it? she was paid 30 pounds for this work now she also later on sued for songwriting royalties in in 2004 she sued for songwriting royalties and they settled out of court and so we don't know what that was about but as of 2005 all pressings co-credit richard wright and claire tory yeah wow isn't it neat, though? I mean, it's just, it's, she's basically using the voice as an instrument rather than yep. right, right. Mm -hmm. any kind of lyrics. And this is all ad-libbed. There yes. is nothing in writing say, do this note, do this note. Sure. No, it's all ad-libbed. It's literally like doing a vocal guitar solo mm -hmm. in that sense. It's mm -hmm. like you just, 
you just go where it takes you. Yeah. Not exactly what you expect on rock radio, though. No. no. But I'll tell you what, if you just need to settle down tonight and, this will, and before you go to sleep, this is perfect. I don't know anything about that, of course. But. <laughs> <laughs> you, need, you mean a song about death helps you go to sleep? The is music, that what you're saying? The, the music, though. All <laughs> yeah, <yeah>, <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, man, that was a good one. That was solid. So we're going to go into another one that should be, all of these songs should be familiar to everybody. Oh, yeah. Because this is such a, sure. such a successful album. This is not called The Lunatic. This is also not called The Dark Side of the Moon, although a lot of people think that. And it was at one point called those. But this is called Brain Damage. Roger Waters has the lead on this song, and David Gilmour is on backing vocals. You know, you, you mentioned Alan Parsons, mm-hmm. and I didn't know he was involved in this. I've always liked Alan Parsons. Yeah. When I asked earlier if you've always been a Pink Floyd fan, I was just not really a fan of Pink Floyd in the 80s anyway, mm-hmm. listening to the old stuff. Sure. But now I can hear... Alan Parsons' influence in a lot of this stuff, oh, yeah, for sure. And he, I mean, that's a br- another brilliant guy. Mm-hmm. Well, this is where he became famous, essentially, is is as the engineer for, uh, for for Dark Side of the Moon, and the album is just. It's hard to, you can't underestimate how big this album was. It was a huge critical and commercial success. It is one of the most acclaimed records in history. And it commercially topped the U.S. Billboard LP and tape chart, and it charted for 962 weeks amazing. in total. It was on the charts for over 18 years. I mean, that's just amazing. I don't think another album or maybe a Michael Jackson did something like I don't know. I don't. I don't know of any album that no, is. That's the longest running. Yeah, I that's, think it that, is. I don't think that. I mean, Michael Jackson's total sales and so forth may have been greater. Right. Probably was greater, but not as far as length of time. That's yeah. But, that's the Cal Ripken of. Right. Right. Yeah. That's a good way of putting <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> Listen Absolutely. to that laughter in the background. Yeah. The little voices and stuff back there. Yeah. So this is clearly about lunacy, and you hear this over and over with Pink Floyd. They were um, affected for the rest of their time by the issues that Sid Barrett mm-hmm. ran oh, into. Yeah. Um, it was, um, and, and a lot of that, a lot of the lyrics have to do with that, and, in, and one lyric in particular is uh, that has to do with Sid Barrett's situation. It says, um, let me see, it may be coming up right here where it talks about the um, this different tunes. Yeah, here we go. Okay, that had a historical basis. And I think, Brian, I think you might have mentioned that when you covered a previous Pink Floyd right. album, yeah. that Barrett would play a different song than the rest of the band in concerts and on more than one occasion as as in the latter days as he was really kind of descending into some serious mental issues yeah so and then also the the lyric where it says uh the lunatic is on the grass Uh 
I found that one interesting. Or the lunatic is on the grass. Yes. That's yes. the case. Get your pronunciations case. right, sir. Is that on the weed? No, no. It's not? That the, that comes from the idea of these these perfectly manicured spaces, and then they would have a sign that says, keep off the grass. And the lunacy is either is it's a person would have to be insane to go out where the grass says keep off the grass mm-hmm. or it's insane for somebody to tell people that you cannot stand on perfectly good grass yeah. <laughs> now we just drifted into another song this is actually this is eclipse but you always hear brain damage and eclipse oh yeah together. i thought it was the same thing I did too, really, until I, I started looking at this and realized this is two different songs. Um, it's the final track from the album, and it's kind of the yin and yang of life, I guess. It's talking about good and bad and light and dark. And then you get to this, it builds up to the very ending lyrics where it says, And everything under the sun is in tune but the sun is eclipsed by the moon. Ah. It's just a lot deeper than your average rock song, isn't it? And this is a credit to Roger Waters, because this is really his first big uh, debut, if you will, of his writing. Because as mentioned, Sid Barrett did most of the writing before then. Yeah. Until he had his problems. So Roger Waters took the, as uh, Rick Wright said, Roger Waters wrote all the mix because he had something to say. Mm. Yes. There you go. Now, we will probably cut this a little early, but let's just play a little bit further in it. This is, you'll start hearing the heartbeat coming back. Hmm. Yeah. This, this album made the entire band fabulously wealthy. And, of course, it changed the trajectory of Pink Floyd. Mm-hmm. But it fades off into the distance. Thank you, Bruce. That's just gold. All right. Well, that's a great one. Now we're going to go to our entertainment track brought to us by Monkey Ranch Brewing in Swanee, Georgia. And you'll recognize this. Well, you might recognize it. That is... The theme music to the $10,000 Pyramid, which debuted in March of 1973. If you were a fan of Concentration, Concentration ended, or at least the original, the longest-running game show of all time until The Price is Right eclipsed it in 1987. Other entertainment items, Police Story debuted on TV. Mission Impossible ended on TV. In soap opera news, The Young and the Restless debuted. And the world has never been the same since. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Love is a Mini Splendored Thing and Where the Heart Is ended. Wow. So if you were a big fan of those, this was the last time you were able to watch them. My grandmother was a big As the World Turns fan. It's funny when you think about soap operas like that. I had a friend who watched, um, was it called Dark Dark Stories? What was the name? The Vampire oh, Soap yeah, Opera? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, Dark I know what Shadows. You're yeah, Dark, Dark Shadows. Shadows yeah. yeah, there you go, Mike. So I remember going to my friend's house after school 
And his, uh, I guess it was actually his grandmother was sitting in the den watching Dark Shadows. <laughs> <laughs> my family did not, my mom did not watch any soap operas. Wasn't so. a fan. Yeah. My, grand, my, my mom didn't, but my grandparents both yeah. did. Yeah. So. Uh, Betty White made her first appearance on the Mid- Mary Tyler Moore show oh. in its fourth season. The Poseidon Adventure was at the top of the box wow. office mm-hmm. in March of 1973. That was actually pretty well done with the special effects and everything. Yeah, that was it made one. you very claustrophobic. <laughs> yes. yes, it did. And the there, whole drowning thing. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yes, the water continually reaching out to you. A made-for-TV movie was released in March of 1973. You might have heard of this one. It was called The Six Million Dollar Man. Ah, yes. There would be three movies released in 1973 with Steve Austin, astronaut, Mm. Uh the Bionic Man, and then it would be followed by the regular series in 1974. Okay. So really huge. That's interesting because normally we think of shows coming first and then later on the movie that, that when the show ends and then they'll do a, a movie but the movie came first mm-hmm. yeah know. yeah it, it was an interesting way approach to things all right well that's entertainment for march of 1973 and we're going to go on to staff picks and our first staff pick is from brian see if you recognize it guys Hmm? That's some rather distinctive piano work, isn't it? You know, I remember when Brock was young. Absolutely, <laughs> Mike. A very... I literally remember that. <laughs> <laughs> well played. You. you know, only a guy with a, a voice for radio could do that. You know yeah. what I mean? That's, That's right. Brilliant, Mike. Thank you very much. <laughs> of course, this song is by Sir Elton John. Written by Elton John and who was his songwriting cohort? Bernie Toppin. Bernie yeah. Toppin. It was recorded in the summer of 1972, and it was listed as Strawberry Studios on the album credits, but it was actually the Chateau de Ville studio. And this is where they wrote the... Elton John and his team had previously recorded the Honky Chateau album. Mm-hmm. Remember that one? It became... His first U.S. number one single. Was it really? Isn't that amazing? That is. Well, it's interesting, too, because this has a, a very much a throwback feel, doesn't it? It's a yes. 50s bebop feel. Absolutely. Yes. In Canada, it topped the chart as well. And if you remember, the, 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 that's a mm-hmm. Parfusa organ. Is it? And Elton plays that instrument as well. He's so talented. Oh, yeah. And at the time of this recording, two weeks ago, I went and saw him at the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Mm-hmm. How was it? It was phenomenal. Did he sound really, really good? Very strong. And he was into it. And the crowd was into it. So it just made for a wonderful concert experience. Well, and that's home field advantage, too, isn't it? It because, is. Uh, it is. John is a, an Atlanta resident now. And his, his band at the time had Davey Johnstone on guitars. D. Murray on bass and Nigel Olson, Nigel Olson on drums. Nigel Olson and D. Murray were playing with him right at the concert two or three weeks ago. Oh so. wow! Do you have another uh, band member like Ray Cooper? Is that name seem familiar? To you? Doesn't sound familiar to me, okay. but it doesn't mean it wasn't I, I, there. He, he was like a percussion. I, I'm maybe thinking of somebody else. But yeah, look, this is 
Elton John singing with Elton John. Oh, cool. You can do the double tracking, and Later. Elton's doing, the, the, of course, the backups. The song was inspired by Elton John's discovery of leading Australian band Daddy Cool. Hmm. And their hit single, Eagle Rock. I didn't know that. So... I picture him wearing that duck costume and singing this. <laughs> you remember that? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I don't know where that was, but I just I just have that in my head. Now, Sir Elton has played this song at almost every concert. I imagine. And he played it. Played it there at, at, in Atlanta. You know, I remember when his when they did his first basically greatest hits album. Yeah. Where, where it was like well, probably not the first one, but it was. Uh, Candle in the wind. And I was listening to the album. It's like, I know every single song. And it was like 40 songs on this double oh. live. And it's like, you it's know crazy. every single every single one. Absolutely. It's crazy. And you know, in 2021, in an interview, according to Wikipedia, the source of all truth and knowledge. Of course. Elton John says that Crocodile Rock was written as a joke. And he does not enjoy playing it. So go figure. But he, oh, does wow. it, he does it because the fans like it. Of course. That's the way it always is, right? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, I'm bringing the next one here. What you got, Rob? See if you uh, recognize this. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm watching a detective show. It, it does have that feel, doesn't it? It does. I was thinking about that. I heard this song back in the day, and I actually thought it was... Uh, ZZ Top for some reason. It just felt like it was that that kind of a feeling. But um, this is the Cisco Kid by the band War. And this is from their 1972 album, The World is a Ghetto. I remember this song. Now you know it. Yep. This was their highest charting song on the Billboard Hot 100. It made it all the way to number two. And unfortunately, what kept it out of hitting number one... Tie a yellow ribbon round the old oh, oak tree. Oh, oh. Ouch. <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh. Yes. Oh. It does so, have it does have a little bit of ZZ Top feel it does. in it. If there was yeah. a little more crunching yes. guitars, you could definitely see it here. Yes. That. It's yeah. definitely and it's got this kind of reggae thing going on too, yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. Somebody's working that bass very well. Yeah, and there was some part of it that made me think a little bit of American Woman by the Guess Who. Just kind of felt like it mm-hmm. kind of fit in with that. But uh, this is a story about two cowboys, Cisco and Poncho, and there was a TV show in the 50s called The Cisco Kid. So he's just going through and he's repeating this verse every time. <laughs> Cisco came in blasting drinking port. Drinking port. Yeah, it's a lot of drinking in this song. Apparently. Yeah. Sounds like they're in a bar right there just kind of saluting life. Cheers! So, Poss- possibly how they wrote the song. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> now, another song by them that I really did think was ZZ Top was Low Rider. Oh, yeah. That, that's yeah. What, this sounds a lot like Low Rider, it does. too. It's like I feel like there's almost car horns in the background or something. The, yeah. the instruments and uh, other hits. They they had a a few. The world is a ghetto, which is off of this album. Spill the wine, 
Summer and Why Can't We Be Friends. You remember Why Can't oh, We yeah. Be Friends? Oh, yeah. yes. Yeah. War has been described as fusing rock, funk, jazz, mm-hmm. Latin, rhythm and blues, psychedelia, reggae. I mean, it's a it's a very um, eclectic group. There's a, there's almost, a wide... Yeah, almost world music, isn't it? Yes, it is. And almost. Intentionally, one of the uh, members... Leroy Jordan said that the band's goal was to spread a message of brotherhood and harmony using instruments and voices to speak out against racism, hunger, gangs, crimes, turf wars, and to promote hope and the spirit of brotherhood. And they were uh, very, they had a lot of ethnicity in their their band. At this time, the band members were Howard Scott, Leroy Jordan, B.B. Dickerson, Harold Ray Brown, Papa D. Allen, Charles Miller and Lee Oscar, and they're still touring today. I went to their website, and it's pretty really? it's pretty up to date and current. And wow. right now, the only original member is Leroy Jordan. But uh, yeah, check out War.com. I don't know how they got War.com. That would seem. <laughs> it's it's interesting that you know they, of, of all they would have had to get it very very early. Yeah, very very early on. Exactly, exactly. Or they paid through the nose. That is a neat sound, and it's it's during that time when the storytelling song yeah. would be big. Yes, that's neat. So I enjoyed learning a little more about it, and I hope you did as well. All right, so we're moving on to our staff picks, and we're going to have our guest Mike Fernandez bring mm-hmm. us this next one. What do you have for us, Mike? One of my all-time favorites. And I loved his solo work later on. But this was a group called Steeler's Wheel. And I remember when this song oh, came out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was so catchy. And I was thinking, it's like, it's it's got one of the greatest lines in the, in the history of rock. And that has been repeated ad nauseum over and over in no matter what generation mm-hmm. that you are from is clowns to the left of me, yes. jokers to the right. Yes. <laughs> and I believe it's coming up. <laughs> Which, one of the reasons I think that's so iconic is because we have all lived that. Yes. In some respect or yes. another, whether it be in our workplace or family life or whatever. But uh, this was a... Uh, uh, Jerry Rafferty is the guy who you're hearing. Oh. The, yeah. Jerry Rafferty is the lead vocalist and the writer here. That, this was his group. Wow. And so uh, this song also became famous uh, for being uh, in a, a very, uh, obviously, famous movie called Reservoir Dogs. Oh, yeah. And it so, was dark. And so dark movie. But it's funny that this kind of song, which is which is which has a humorous bent to it a little but and a little slyness to it, but it was in a movie that was a dark. But it, but and it, what was it, going on at the time in the movie exactly. was absolutely horrifying. So, but it was, for whatever reason, it fit perfectly and still is known to this day for. Matter of fact, when you look up on iTunes, you don't, and look up that, that, that particular song, you don't, it doesn't go to a Jared Steeler's Wheel album. It immediately goes to Reservoir Dog Reservoir Dogs soundtrack. Oh, gosh. It's really true. So, wow. Um, 
so Jerry Rafferty obviously went on to become, you know, a, uh, his own pop icon himself yes. with uh, Baker Street. Right. And we hear is that isn't that who we hear at the uh, ball field? Is that Jerry Rafferty that does the? No, that's no, John. No, no, that's John Fogarty. John Fogarty. Fogarty, John Fogarty. Yeah, Fogarty Rafferty, thank you. I knew it was <laughs> yeah, in sure, my head. There was sure, a little bit of a fog. I mean, I'm sure John Fogarty would appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> but we're, we're sorry, Mr. Fogarty. The, the, the what? Speaking of mis, you know, mis, misplacing the artist, it always, I always assumed this was George Harrison. It just has a George Harrison. It does feel have to a, me. a George it Harrison sounds like feel him. to it. Yeah, but uh, Rafferty had. Uh, uh, Obviously, this song uh, has Baker Street, and he had another one off his debut album, or it, I don't know if it was that one or a second one called "Right Down the Line." Mm-hmm. Oh yeah! yeah. And so and so he was kind of after that. He had another single off an, an uh, I think an album following that. Didn't really hear from him again. And what's interesting later is like he has now passed away, but but hmm. uh, like later, more later years, he was still creating music and had a spiritual bent to him. Oh, so he had a he had found faith in God and had uh, and was expressing that a lot in his in his later albums that but you can find you can look that up. Yes. But, um, well, his drinking was his demise. I mean, was that his drinking was his demise? It just liver failure. I'm not failure. really sure. Yeah, I, his, I his liver his liver couldn't yeah. handle it. All right. Well, thanks, Mike. That was good. Awesome. Thanks for bringing that. Now we're going to bring it to the man who started it all, Bruce. Indeed. So we're going from Pink Floyd. I figured I could get away with this since Wayne's not here. <laughs> oh, my word. Wayne, this is dedicated to you, pal. <laughs> so this was originally who? Kenny Loggins. There you go. Kenny Loggins wrote it when he was a senior in high school in 1966. As a gift to his brother Danny when Danny had his son Colin. And it's called Danny's Song. It was first performed by a group called Gator Creek in 1970. I'm not familiar with that group, but they did it first. And then it appeared on Loggins and Messina's album, their debut album in 1972. And it did not chart. It wasn't even released. It was released as a B-side. It wasn't released as a single. Um... But uh, so it didn't chart, and nothing else charted from the Loggins and Messina debut album. But uh, Anne Murray picked this up, and that's the version that we're playing today. She is the Canadian country pop singer, and it would go to number seven on the Billboard Hot 100. You know, I'd actually forgotten that she did this cover. I, I knew Ke- Loggins did it. I just have forgotten completely that she did it. It's really interesting. It was a big hit for her. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting that, you know, how these how these songs come in to 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 popular sentiment or whatnot, that it was made famous by Ann Murray. But we all think of it as a Loggins and Messina Mm -hmm. song because that's where we've heard it. And more recently, that's all I've heard on on radio oh, is yeah. the the Loggins version. The Loggins version. Right? Yeah, when it started, I was expect I was like, I thought this was a male singing this. <laughs> <laughs> One of the purest alto voices you'll ever hear on uh, on any kind of pop radio, of course, her and Karen Carpenter, and yes, so forth. But, oh, yeah. but this one, a truly great singer. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. 
And we don't have a whole lot of Ann Murray on uh, What the Riff. No. Yes. We don't have a lot of Karen Carpenter on What the Riff. We might need to change yeah, that. I think we need to make some amends there. Yeah, I was I was surprised to see it. Here it sounds like we're on What the Riff. <laughs> <laughs> don't judge me. Nice one, work. Yeah, that works. But it's just a nice, it's got, I mean, I would consider this the California country sound. You know, sure. that early 70s, right. Eagles, yes. Linda Ronstadt kind of sound, even though okay. it's a Canadian artist. We'll yeah. allow it. I won't edit it out. <laughs> I won't edit it out of the podcast. <laughs> uh, thank you, Rob. <laughs> All right. So now we're going on to either our laugh track or instrumental. And we have an instrumental here. I remember this. Do you remember this? Because I didn't remember it until I heard this when we were putting the uh, episode together. Mm-hmm. I do remember this. It seems appropriate, though, with Dark Side of the Absolutely. Moon, doesn't it? It does. Absolutely does. Still hear it on my clock radio next to my bed. I always love hearing the announcers introduce this song. Because it was like they had to get it right. Because also Sprock Zarathustra. So it's like that is. You try saying that five times fast and figure out. I'm not even going to say it one time <laughs> slow. Much, but uh, this is a cover version of. What did we say? Also Sprock. There's Zarathustra. I'm not going to say it again, like Rob. <laughs> <laughs> it's a you, funky you go version. With, you go with. But this was on the this was on the charts at the time. And who used this piece to introduce his shows? Elvis Presley. There you go. 2001 Space Odyssey. There you have it. A few things that we need to catch up on: uh, the top songs from March 1973. Could it be I'm Falling in Love by the Spinners? Yes. Neither of us wants to be the first to say goodbye. Gladys, Gladys Knight, Knight yes. and the Piss. Yes, yes. Who did Rocky Mountain High? John Denver. In the John go. Denver Experience. Oh no, that's a that's a cartoon. I'm sorry. <laughs> How about the Love Train? OJ's. OJ. The OJ's. Very good. Yo, Mike. There you go. Thank you. Dueling banjos. Eric Weissman and. How about that? Is that right? That's right. Okay. Eric, Eric Meisberg. Meisberg, thank you. Yeah. Killing Me Softly with his song. Roberta Black. Roberta. And the cover of the Rolling Stone. Dr. Hook yes. and the Medicine Show. Yes. How about that? Wow. Thank hey, you. It's, it's almost like he should. you should be a DJ, man. Yes. Theoretically, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you, you guys have enjoyed that. We've, uh, we've had a great time putting together this. This has been March 1973, and we're What the Riff. I'm Bruce. I'm Brian. I'm Rob. I'm Mike. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Yeah. My pleasure. You'll yeah. have to come back again. How about I'm, next week? I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to What the Riff. We hope you enjoyed the songs we had on tap today. Please tell your friends about us. Check us out at whattheriff.com and follow us on Facebook. Special thanks to our sponsors, Wright Column Financial, Stanton Electric, and Marbury Creative Group. That's all for this week. See you next week on What the Riff?